Our scripture text tonight will be Exodus chapter 27. Exodus chapter 27, and then we'll also be going to Exodus chapter 38. While you're um, finding those passages, um, and maybe dim the lights just a little bit, if you would please. We talked this morning about uh, the, the blueprint, the plan, and kind of reiterated that with the children a little while ago. Um, one of the things just to, to have set in our head as to how things were arranged uh, there in that courtyard and then in the tabernacle itself. First of all, you have to note the directions. The tabernacle was always to be set up with the door facing the east. I don't know if that also has some play in the fact of, uh, as we were at a cemetery yesterday talking to the kids about the fact that uh, the headstone is always on the west side and the body is laid out towards the east, uh, that the head is actually looking towards the east. Maybe that's part of it as well, as well as other texts. But uh, that certainly is what God required for the tabernacle. They could never set this up with the door facing north or west or south. It ought to always had to face east. As well as the gate. This is the gate right here into the courtyard of the tabernacle. The gate also always had to be on the east side as they set it up. When you came in, the very first object that you would see was going to be the bronze altar. The second thing that you would see is the bronze laver. Then this is the tabernacle proper. In the tabernacle, and as we go through this series, okay, we'll cover the table of showbread, the seven-branch lampstand, and the altar of incense. Those three items are all in the holy place. This is the area where the priests were allowed to minister daily, morning and evening, in their worship of the Lord. They'd come in the morning, they'd come in the evening to do the work that was associated with the holy place. Then you have the great veil that divides. You have the the holy of holies back here with the Ark of the Covenant. This is entered, once it's set up and so on, What this is entered by the priests, but once a year, and that on the Day of Atonement, and that only by the man who is serving as the high priest. Uh, that's the only day. Now, as I said, this is all enclosed within the cart, within the courtyard. Uh, the courtyard also has a curtain all the way around it. Uh, the courtyard is about 75 feet, by 150 feet, uh, we're transferring cubits to feet, so there's always the about, okay, because the measurement of the cubit fluctuated uh, as well. So 75 feet wide, 150 feet long, and then the, the gate is also uh, specifically made out of uh, very beautiful materials. But I'm going to reference this several times that when you came in, Okay, the first object you're going to see is the bronze altar. Okay, the second object is going to be the bronze laver. Then okay, comes the holy place and the holy of holies. Israelites were allowed to enter this part. 
Only the priests are allowed to go here. So, just so we have that. Thank you, Vinny. So, now let's read God's Word as it records for us not only what God commanded in regards, in, in regards to this bronze altar, but also then how we see Moses completing it. So we'll start in Exodus chapter 27. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. And you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners, and you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. The poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. And then Exodus chapter 38. Verse 1. He made the altar of burnt offering of acacia wood, five cubits with its length, five cubits its breadth. It was square, three cubits was its height. He made horns for it on its four corners, its horns were of one piece with it, and he overlaid it with bronze. He made all the utensils of the altar, the pots, the shovels, the basins, the forks, and the fire pans. He made all the utensils of bronze. He made it for the altar, and he made for the altar a grating, a network of bronze under its ledge extending halfway down. He cast four rings on the four corners of the bronze grating as holders for the poles. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with bronze. And he put the poles through the rings the sides of the altar, to carry it with them. He made it hollow with boards. As far as the reading of God's word. Let's again ask for God's blessing as we consider this passage tonight. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you for your plan. You have a plan for everyone. We ask that you will be with Pastor Bob as he speaks on this word guide him to the proper words. This we ask in your name alone. Amen. Amen. So, let's look at four things in regards to this bronze altar this evening. First of all, the description that God gives of it. Secondly, the use. What was its function? What was its purpose? Why is it being made? Third, the fulfillment that we see once again in Christ. And then fourth, what are the implications for us as we come into God's presence to worship as well. First of all, the description of it. Let me, let me give you the size. Okay, We have it in cubits. That's what I read. If you can't make the transfer, a cubit is about a foot and a half, which makes it about 7.5 feet square. So it's 7.5 feet by 7.5 feet. 
and it's approximately four and a half feet high. It is the largest of all the pieces of furniture that are going to be made. It's one of the things, if you took a look and were looking closely at the blueprint, the, the, the depiction, you'll note that the labor was a little out of scan. Uh, they're using that which, and I looked it up, and they were the ones that Solomon made were much larger than the ones in the tabernacle. And the, when you look at it, it appears that they were probably using that scale uh, and saying it was about that. But it, it's pretty obvious that the, the altar, this altar, is the largest piece of furniture that it's there. And I'm just going to reiterate it again. It is the first thing you encounter. In order to get to the tabernacle, the very first thing you encounter, you have to deal with, is the altar, the bronze altar that is right smack dab in front of you. You can't miss it. Secondly, there are some details that are associated with this altar, each of which is, is important, each of which carries with it its, its own significance. But for now, let me just list them. One, interestingly, that on the sides they are to have these projectiles that are to be horns on each of the four corners. Now, horns in Scripture often represent salvation. For example, if you go to Psalm 18, I think it is verse 2, probably is our clearest Depiction of the fact that that the idea is that horns represent salvation, salvation of God's people in all directions, in all four corners of the earth, does God's work go forth. But they're to be one with the altar. In other words, they're not some sort of piece that you make and then you screw it on or you attach it on. It is to be molded right into the, the mold of the sides. So it's one thing, and the reason I bring that out and make a point of it is just to step back and say, the men who are involved in the work of this, I mean, it's not like, it's not like you know, Aaron's excuse, oh, we threw some stuff in the pot and this is what came out. These men had knowledge, intricate knowledge, of how to work with metals. And you'll recall that a few weeks ago there were two men that were given to Moses in particular who God says I have gifted with these abilities, with these talents. But obviously there are other workers involved in this construction as well. And uh, it, it's just kind of, you know, we often think all oh, these people are so backwards and they don't know anything, they don't know how to do anything. And yet we, what we're encountering is a pretty advanced civilization for a bunch of slaves. I mean, that's what they were. And yet they have the advancement and knowledge to be able to do this kind of metalworking. And, and this is pale in comparison to the objects that we'll find inside of the tabernacle, Lord willing, in weeks to come. So one of the details to note about this are these horns. The second thing to note is the fact there were a lot of things made to go along with it that are associated with the altar. There are pots, there are shovels, there are basins, there are forks, there are fire pots. 
all of which are associated in some way with cleaning out the ashes, with stabbing the meat and taking out the meat that is needed, or keeping the fire in terms of fire pots even while they're traveling. And we'll come back to that in a few minutes as well. The other thing that is noted that was not noted about the labor is the means by which it is carried. Nothing was said about the labor. Okay? We know it came in two pieces. Okay? That was clearly obvious from the passages. So did they simply take it apart and carry it like that? We don't know. God didn't, doesn't tell us in his word. But as far as this altar is concerned, we know it has to be carried by poles. Rings are made, particularly set in the corners so that they could run the poles through it, lift it, and carry it as they went, as they traveled. The other thing to note is that it is to be hollow. There is no bottom in this. There's no bottom. So it's not like a grill where you have a piece of metal on the bottom as well. That bottom is simply dirt. It's earth. You recall one of the early things that God had said about altars is that they, they had to be earthen. Well, God is holding true to his own word. He's using bronze as the material of the earth. That's the way they understood it. Okay? But it's also in contact with the earth in the fact that they, they don't put a bottom in it as either. So it also makes it much easier to carry. The last thing to note is that there is a grating. It, we, in the ESV, it keeps talking about a network, a woven network. So you, you kind of have to imagine somewhat the idea of a very complicated mattress made of bronze that is lowered into this uh, altar halfway down. I mean, that was mentioned a couple of times. So you got four and a half feet. So, so the, the network, this grating, okay, is about two and a half feet thick. Now, that's you're going to place animals on it for sacrifice. That's what's going to happen with it. Fat can drip through, blood can drip through, and everything else. Okay, And that then goes into the dirt, into the earth, which is what God is intending to happen here. The other thing to note uh, about the description that we're given is simply the materials that are used. This is the first time we're going to hear this, but it's going to become a repetitive thing. They're to make it out of acacia wood. Here, because it is something that is outside of the tabernacle, it is to be overlaid with bronze. And once again, the ingenuity, the, the, the abilities to know how to do this okay, are, are pretty amazing. One of the things and one of the attributes of acacia wood is that it is an extremely hard wood to be used. So that's probably the reason. It's not going to crack. It's not going to break as they lift all these objects, as they carry these objects. So the acacia wood, the wood that they're using, is durable, and so is the bronze. In this case, when we looked at the labor, our concern was, well, what about weather? Here, it has to be heat because they're going to have intense fires burning underneath this grating to burn and consume the sacrifices. So the material that is used 
has to be one that will be durable and able to, to withstand great and high temperatures. And so it's to be made out of bronze. Not the bronze of the mirrors of the women. Okay? That was this morning. That was the labor. There was a specific reason and purpose why those mirrors were to go into okay, the building of that basin. Here, they're not used. This is not, they, they weren't a part of this. No attention is called. It's just the bronze that the people gifted in other ways and other forms that they got from the Egyptians. Secondly, what is the use? Well, there are really three uses and then just a comment to make. And, and it may sound like I'm saying the same thing, uh, but, but I really mean to differentiate these things. This altar is going to be used for sacrifices. That may seem like a no-brainer. It probably is. But we need to mention it. It is for sacrifices. Leviticus chapters 1 through 6 detail the sacrifices that Israel was to offer on this altar. There's all sorts of various kinds and types. Sin offerings, guilt offerings. There are peace offerings. There are burnt offerings that need to come. So God details later on in Leviticus the type of offerings, the setting, what was to be the animal offered or what was to be part of the offering that was to go into it. So sacrifices. But what's the point of the sacrifice? The sacrifice is not an end in itself. It wasn't just, hey, let's offer, let's offer a bull today. Let's offer a lamb today. There is a reason. There is a purpose behind them. Right? For that, I'd ask you to just page forward to Leviticus chapter 17. Verse 10, Leviticus 17, 10. If anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So the point of sacrifices, yes, there are sacrifices to be all offered. But beyond that, God is saying those sacrifices are about atonement. And now here in this passage, he's saying, I don't want you eating raw meat. I don't want you to eat meat with blood in it. Why? Because blood is life. And I have a specific purpose. I have a specific function for blood. Blood is to be offered only on the altar. Because blood is the life of the animal. Blood, therefore, becomes the sacrifice. It becomes, as he says here in Leviticus 17, the atonement the means by which one is made right with God. How do we deal with our sin? We bring a sacrifice. Well, what does the sacrifice have to do with our sin? 
because the sacrifice is a blood sacrifice. You're sacrificing the blood of the animal along with the animal, and that represents the life of the animal, and it is by that means that God is saying atonement is made. Third use, not only for sacrifice, not only for atonement, but it's also for the purpose of thanksgiving. It's the purpose of consecrating oneself to the Lord. Now, the way this worked was that you first of all brought the animal as a means of your sacrifice for your sin. But you always had to tell the priest, why are you bringing? What is this animal for? What type of sacrifice are you bringing? What type of atonement needs to be made? Sometimes it was for willful sins. Sometimes it was for unintentional sins. But sometimes you brought the animal simply because you were acknowledging you were a sinful person, but you desired to consecrate yourself fully to the Lord. You desired to live a holy life, so you brought your sacrifice. So it's sort of a sacrifice of consecration. Maybe we would say it's a sacrifice of thanksgiving that could be brought to this altar as well. But if you step back from it, you think about this. This is a bloody, stinking mess. I mean, there's no easy way to, to say that this isn't pristine. This isn't beautiful. This is ugly. It had a stink. That blood being burned up on the altar, all that fat being burned up on the altar. Sometimes the whole animal had to be burned up on the altar. No, and sometimes they're there for weeks. Sometimes they're there for longer periods of time. And here it is. It's just this bloody, stinking mess. You say, well, what, what did they do when they moved? When they move, they pack it all up. Levites are given the responsibility of carrying it. But they are given a very unique command. Turn to Leviticus chapter 6. Leviticus chapter 6. Verse 12. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. So whenever they have this thing set up in camp, there is to be a constant fire. Some of you are probably thinking, I think Pastor Bob would have liked to have been an Old Testament priest. Okay? Particularly my neighbors who have been putting up with uh, a lot of burning of trees in the past couple of weeks. But you just stop and think about it. You can never let it go out. Now, what we know became associated with this is because they took this command so seriously, they said, that means when we move, 
we have to take some of the coals from this particular fire at this location, make sure we use those coals to start the fire at the next location. Because God doesn't want the fire of that altar ever to go out. So it's not like, hey, pack it up, put out the fire, douse it, okay, throw some water over it, okay, all out, yep, good, let's move. And they get to the next location, hey, anybody got a fire starter, let's get it going again. Now, they already had that in these coals that they would transport, the fire pots, okay, that God told them to build as a part of this. So those are its uses. Is that fulfilled? Well, must be, because we don't have an altar out back. Before you came to church, there's no altar you have to go through. Just like I said this morning, there's no little wash basin out there that you somehow have to dip yourself, wash your hands, wash your feet in before you're allowed into the sanctuary to worship the Lord. Why? Because we find its fulfillment in Christ. Why is there no altar? Why aren't we offering sacrifices? Why isn't there a fire going? Why don't we have a bronze altar outside of the doors of every church? Aren't we entering into the presence of God just like the priest would be? Yes. Well, shouldn't we be offering a sacrifice? Answer, it already has been. So let's look at three aspects of that fulfillment. One, the fact that atonement has been fulfilled. Got to go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. Hebrews, chapter 9. Pick it up at verse 22. Hebrews 9, verse 22. Indeed, it, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, meaning the tabernacle, which are copies of the true things, but Christ has entered into heaven itself, the importance of the ascension, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Why is there no brazen altar? Because Jesus presented himself the brazen altar of sacrifice once and for all doesn't need to be repeated doesn't need to be done again once that was always needed in order that we might enter into not a physical tabernacle but the spiritual tabernacle of God the very presence of God so atonement has been fulfilled what about sacrifice? Stay in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You say, well, wait a minute. Isn't that why they were offering? Yes and no. 
yes, because that's what God commanded. No, because those animals only were shadows of Christ. They were only representative of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, the author of Hebrews says, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Not one of those sacrifices in and of itself took away a sin. Not one bull, not one lamb sacrificed on that brazen altar took away one single sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now skip down to verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So why is there no need for a sacrifice any longer? Because Christ came, shed his blood on the cross. That sacrifice, that offering, has provided forgiveness of sin. There is no other offering that needs to be made. No other animal needs to shed its blood. No other person needs to shed their blood for the forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of sin was accomplished in the one sole sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Why no altar outside? Because Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross. Third, turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Starting at verse 21. After pointing us to the fact that all men are righteous, no one does good, our doctrine of total depravity, verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. We go back and we talk about, you know, the life is in the blood and therefore there is atonement and, and there is forgiveness. So what God is telling us in Romans chapter 3 is this. Christ is the fulfillment of our redemption. It is through faith in Jesus Christ that we receive a righteousness from God. We are redeemed. We are purchased back. We are brought into His presence. We are allowed to enter God's presence. We're allowed to go into the tabernacle. We're allowed to be in God's presence here because of the redemption of Jesus Christ. 
we are allowed to enter glory because of the redemption of Jesus Christ. So the fulfillment of this bronze altar is found in Christ's atonement, in Christ's sacrifice, and in the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. Which brings us lastly then, so what are the implications of this? God obviously went to great concern in constructing, in having this this brazen altar constructed. God goes into great detail in making sure that's repeated. Now, isn't it interesting that we don't have an Exodus chapter 27 and all those verses, and then all we read in chapter 38 is Moses built the bronze altar. Why doesn't it do that? Why does it repeat all that information? Why? Because God said all that information is important. All that information is essential. I'm not just giving you information because I want to fill up a book. I'm pointing to my son. I'm pointing to how I desire to be worshipped. If you Israelites truly desire to enter into my presence, and and I'll state it a different way this evening than I did this morning, you have to remember that when the high priest enters into that tabernacle, he bears on his shoulders the names of the tribes of Israel. He bears on his chest this breastplate of righteousness with 12 precious stones, one of those stones representing each one of the tribes of Israel, so that when he turns and when he enters into that tabernacle, the people of Israel see themselves. As he enters, they enter. They are one with the high priest. That's the way God designed it. Two, three million people can't make it into this thing. So there is this one representative, this high priest, who's allowed to enter into God's presence in that Ark of the Covenant, where his Shekinah glory dwells, representing the entire nation. So it is legitimate to say that the Israelites do go in through their priests. But does God just chuck all that? Say, yeah, Christ came. I'm not concerned about worship anymore. Or are we to understand how we are to worship through the fulfillment of Jesus Christ? Is God just as concerned today with how he is worshipped as he was in Exodus chapter 27? The answer would be, absolutely. I, Jehovah, change not. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God desires that his people worship him according to his pattern, according to his plan. Well, what is the plan? The plan is the brazen altar. Hey, wait a minute. Didn't you just say we don't have a brazen altar? No, we do. It's Christ. Christ is the altar. Christ is the sacrifice. Christ is the priest by whom we enter in the presence of God. So let me highlight three implications this evening. One, we cannot worship without Christ's atonement. You walk into this courtyard, what is the first thing you see? An altar. 
that points to Christ. That points to Christ's atoning blood. I can't get to the tabernacle without passing the altar. It's what I must deal with. Folks, Muslims do not worship. Hindus do not worship. The only people who worship the Lord truly are those who come to God's presence in the blood of Christ. It's the only way. foolishness of an ecumenical service where you invite Jews and Hindus and every other religion under the sky and say, we're going to have a joint worship service to God. See, we've got to understand that, folks, because there's all sorts of people, all sorts of people in your schools, on your television stations, in their music, who are trying to tell your children, your young people, that Pastor Bob is all wet. That's just narrow-mindedness. We've got to be all-inclusive. We've got to coexist. After all, we all worship one God, don't we? If you think I'm lying, some of your young people have told me that they've had teachers who have told them exactly this. It's all one. Doesn't matter. You need to counter that. You need to be teaching, not compromising. What is the most important thing in order for worship? has to be the atonement of Christ. So only believers get this privilege. Now I know I'm preaching to the choir. I understand that. I'm making, I'm, I'm letting you know that up front. But folks, that's why I do not understand people who will not come to an evening worship service. I don't get it. Now I know there's sickness. I know there's little children. I know there are health concerns. I know there are is age concerns. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the people who are fully able and to be here. There's no reason, no health, no, there's no circumstance that really keeps them from it. The question would be, this is a privilege that only you as a believer have. Nobody else gets this privilege of worship. Why would you turn that down? What could possibly be better than the worship of God? The great privilege, the great honor that we have to be in the presence of God through Christ's atoning blood. The joy that ought to be filling our hearts 
And I get to come to church again. I get to come into God's presence again. I get to worship again. The humility. I mean, what arrogant pride to hear God say, come, come and worship me. Oh, no, I got better things to do. What arrogant pride. into that tabernacle. See the beauty of the Lord. Reflected all around you. See, when we get into that tabernacle, it is awesome. That's what it's like, you see, when you worship with You better get used to it. That's what you're going to do for all of Only believers can worship. But there is another thing. It requires, at times, a sacrifice. Turn with me in closing to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, remember I said there, there is another sacrifice that is often made upon that burnt offering, that bronze altar, and that's the sacrifice of consecration. That's what God desires. God desires a sacrifice not of an animal, but he desires the sacrifice that says, done everything for me. You bought me. You purchased me. The blood of your own son. Here I am. I bring to you the sacrifice of myself. Lord, I don't want to live by the standards of this world anymore. I don't want to follow the thinking pattern of this world. I want to follow your pattern. I want to follow how it is that you desire for me. I want to worship you. Because I can worship you. Because of Christ. God's people say, Father, again, it's just a piece of furniture ordered by you to be built and constructed. Moses did so exactly according to the pattern you had shown him on the mountain. You were pleased with that which was made, so pleased that you're, you're going to take up residence in that tabernacle with your very, very glory. Lord, you've blessed us with the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ 
the fulfillment of all that that altar stood for. So here we come, Father, saying thank you. Thank you for what you've given to us in Christ. Take our lives and let them be. Build. 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 Worship. Praise. Christ's name. That's people saying. Amen.